Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments, that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God. And to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. 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 Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And good to be with all of you this evening. I want to encourage you, as I'm going to do this Sunday, um, to not leave the Institute as your uh, thing that you love. Not to leave it as something that's just for you, but to give it to others. And so I know we're gonna, we have those little institute business cards at the events if you come. Uh, if not, we're happy to send you some so you can share and spread the word. And um, let your neighbors know, let your friends know, so that we can share this gift of our faith with others. Um, and it's not so much about what I say or what Daniel says or Monica says. It's about what Christ says, and we, we come together as a community, joined together in order to be built up in the kingdom of God, uh, and the more the merrier, okay? We're placed on this earth to be the hands and feet of Christ, and so I encourage you to share that. You know, Henry, who's with us tonight, is posting in his bulletin board a little flyer um, about the Institute. For years, he didn't get any response, and then the other day, this nice gentleman came to the Institute. He saw the flyer. He came. He enjoyed the talk and has become a regular participant. So you never know whose heart you're going to touch. And I'll tell you, when you bring someone to Christ, it's for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm so thankful for the Institute because as directing it, I get to share this gift with everybody that's here, and I hope God has mercy on my soul because I sure need it. Daniel, I'd like you to pull up um, Dei Verbum, the text on Vatican II, paragraph 21. If you have it there, uh, readily available, it would be super helpful. If you don't have it on the screen, you could just go ahead and read paragraph 21 of Dei Verbum for us. I want you to listen to this, brothers and sisters. Uh, really listen prayerfully, internalize what the church is saying, because we're going to be talking a lot of tonight about the importance of sacred scripture. We're going to be getting very practical and uh, to help you along the way. And I just want to start out with this because it kind of sets the tone for the importance of what we're talking about. Daniel, you want to go ahead and read that for us? Yes. So, the church has always venerated the divine scriptures just as she venerates the body of the Lord, never ceasing to offer to the faithful, especially in the sacred liturgy, the bread of life, received from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. 
she has always regarded and continues to regard the scriptures together with sacred tradition as the supreme rule of faith. For inspired by God and committed once and for all to writing, they impart the word of God in an immutable form and make the voice of the Holy Spirit resound in the words of the prophets and the apostles. Therefore, it is right and fitting for all the preaching of the church, as indeed the entire Christian religion, to be nourished and ruled by sacred scripture. For in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and speaks with them. So great is the force and the power of God's word that it remains the sustaining life force of the church. Okay, Daniel, I want you to stop for a second. I want you to read that sentence again. In the scriptures, the Father comes to us. And I want you to prayerfully internalize what the church is saying. For in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and speaks with them. Okay, so here's the here's the here's the point is that the church is is telling us which is absolutely true that when we read the scriptures God speaks to us he invites us into communion with himself and don't just let the word communion I wash over you or you've heard it a hundred times communion is the unity of two persons made one with God God speaks to us and when he speaks to us and we open our hearts to that then what was formerly true about him becomes true about us. He speaks it into our heart, and the two become one. And this is, this is fundamentally important. When we read the scriptures, we come into communion with eternal life. So the church says that, that the Eucharist and the, and the, and the scriptures are, are one, in the sense that both of them bring us to the same reality, and Daniel's sharing this. So if you want to mark that down, it's Dei Verbum, chapter 6, and it's paragraph 21 of Dei Verbum, okay? D-E-I, new word, V-E-R-B-U-M, Dei Verbum, the word, verbum of God, Dei, okay? For in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven meets his children with great love and speaks with them. And the force and power in the word of God is so great that it stands as the support and energy of the church, the strength of the faith of her sons, the food of the soul, the pure and everlasting source of spiritual life. Consequently, these words and perfectly are perfectly applicable to sacred scripture. For the word of God is living and active, and it has power to build you up and give you your heritage among all those who are sanctified. Suddenly, when we read the Bible, we are put into a greater communion all of those who have come into union with God, from Adam and Eve to Noah to Melchizedek, Abraham, uh, St. Peter, you name it, we're put into that communion of the people of God, and suddenly our conversation changes. And suddenly in a moment, we are in communion with the, the one who is eternal. Sacred scripture, studied properly, in prayer and in faith, saves because it communicates eternal life to us. And those who have eternal life will not die. Yeah, our bodies, we may fall asleep in the Lord, but the moment we fall asleep, we open our eyes to the one whom we have faith in, whom we've had communion with. It's very important. I'll share with you the words of Pope Leo XIII. Uh, he says, We admonish with paternal love all students and ministers of the church always to approach the sacred writings with reverence and piety. 
for it is impossible to attain to the profitable understanding thereof. So you cannot understand the scriptures unless the arrogance of earthly science be laid aside and there be excited in the heart the holy desire for that wisdom which is from above. Okay? This does not mean that early sciences are not valuable, but they certainly do not know the beginning and end of things. And it's that, the beginning and the end, which the wisdom of God gives. Wisdom always knows the sources of things, okay? The early science may tell us things about how they are here on this earth, but where they came from and where they're going, the earthly sciences cannot answer. But the word of God can, the wisdom of God can. And so I, I just have this little introduction for you to say that we approach sacred scripture, number one, in prayer, and number two, in faith. The two are really one. We come to the sacred scriptures in a desire to be united to God. This is the act of faith. We lay down our will. We lay down our intellect. Uh, not that we lay them aside, but we put them at, in the hands of Christ himself who reveals things to us which we could not otherwise know. And so in the sacred scriptures then, through faith, by being united with the Lord, we begin to see through his eyes. Faith unites us with the one in whom we have faith with. And now we stand in the shoes and see through the eyes of the one who knows all. There's an old timey saying, uh, you've heard me say it before. What does he not see who sees him who sees all? What does he not see who sees him who sees all, right? If Anne Marie looks into the face of the Savior, she sees the one that sees all. And she doesn't only look into his face, but through faith, she's united to him and begins to see through his eyes, to see things as God sees them. And this is ultimately why we read the scriptures, to be united with the Lord. It cannot remain, I'm sure I'll say this to you a number of times tonight, the Bible cannot remain pages in a book. This is not the purpose of the Bible. This is why uh, the church is very cautious to say, hey, we love the Bible, but we're not sola scriptura. We're not sola written word, because the written word is an invitation to a communion with the one who is living and resurrected from the dead. And when we come into communion with him, then our life changes. I want to speak for a moment about some problems that Catholics face when we're, uh, when we're reading the scriptures. But I want to give you, first of all, an example of how God speaks to us. And uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, stop. <laughs> I don't care if you... Yeah, Tom's got it. Nice. Anne Marie's got it. If, if, you, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, you've got Bill, Ed, Marie, everybody's got their Bibles, I hope. Go grab it if you don't have one. Yeah, Daniel, you better have your Bible in front of you. <laughs> I have uh, at least five of them. There you go. Good, 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 good. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. If you're, those are just starting out reading their Bible. 1 Kings is about, oh, I don't know, a quarter way in, a quarter way in from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, okay? So you're just going to scan there. You're going to find it, 1 and 2 Kings. I'm going to go to 1 Kings chapter 19, chapter 19. 
It's the story of the prophet Elias or Elijah. Okay, and he's he flees because they're going to try to kill him because he's teaching the truth. Look, there's nothing new under the sun when you watch the news and they're mur and they're martyring Christians in the Middle East. Nothing new under the sun. Okay, so Eli Elijah, the prophet Elijah, flees to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain. Okay, so he goes up the mountain that Moses had gone up. And in verse 9, chapter 19, that's 1 Kings, chapter 19, verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount of the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So here we have, brothers and sisters, I think a great example for us today. Most of us, I think, want uh, God to come in, hammer us over the head with a sledgehammer, hit us with lightning like, uh, like Saul. But this is not the normal way that the Lord speaks. He doesn't come flying into our lives and completely revealed and throw us on the ground. He speaks to those who are listening. And listening is a practice which much must be cultivated. This is one of the reasons why we wanted to have this talk following Sunday tied to technology, uh, because we've got to make some space in our lives, some space for the Lord. And if we're not willing to do that, then our study of the Word of God, our ability to pray is going to be seriously hampered. So I just put that out for you. I'll come back to that in a minute, but we've got to make a decision in our life. You've made time tonight. You've made time tonight. I appreciate that. It's a beginning to say, I need time in my life and space in my life for God to speak to me. So a couple problems that I think a lot of Catholics face when they approach the Bible, and again, I'll say that we're going to approach this in a very uh, rudimentary level, a very introductory level. So for any of you that are saying, hey, I'm pretty advanced in my Bible study. Well, this talk tonight might not be for you. But for those like myself who still struggle to knock the rust off and remember, you know, exactly where the prophet Elijah fits into the story, uh, how all of these pieces fit together and how the Bible is supposed to somehow excite us in the faith, as Leo XIII said, excite in the heart the holy desire for that wisdom which is from above. For those of us, then uh, I think you're in a good place. Most Catholics don't know the Bible, okay? And you can, I, all, all of our participants can say, amen, Father Hezekiah. I would say, or at least they don't think they know the Bible. You know, I, we've been, I would say, abused. Abused in the sense that we've been told that we don't know the Bible. And I would, I would say that your average Protestant walking down the street who might say that we don't know the Bible, I would put your average Catholic up against them. I would. They may not be able 
the Catholic that is, you may not be able to quote chapter and verse, but for the most part, you know the stories of the Bible. They may be able to quote you one verse, but as I oftentimes say, a text without a context is no text at all. Right, Anne-Marie? A text without a context is no text at all. So, I, you know, take your verse, and I'll take my Bible. You have a verse, I've got a Bible. I want the whole Word of God. It is revealed in the sacred scriptures and through the teachings of the church. And, uh, and with that, to uh, synthesize the whole of salvation history and to be able to hold all aspects of revelation together in harmony. And this is not in my notes, but I'm going to share it with you. Uh, I was just uh, managing one of our Magdala Apostolate classes with the sisters, and they were t talking about modalism, modalism, which uh, was an early heresy in which these people believed that, that God just kind of like revealed himself in different modes. There's one God, but not three persons. And so the revelation of God as Son or as Father or as Holy Spirit are simply modes of the one God rather than persons. And it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. And it, it ultimately coalesces in something, one of the versions of modalism is called patropassionism, that the father suffered, okay? That the father suffered on the cross because it's one God just kind of like masking himself, if you will. I, I came across a little nest of patropassionists at a hotel one time, behind the desk, they're doing a little Bible study led by this guy, and all of a sudden, they'd walk them into the walk themselves into this early heresy of patropassionism. I said, "Don't you realize the church condemned this like 1,700 years ago? This has all been worked out. This is a heresy." But they had walked themselves into it. Why do I say all this? Because the church, and as we'll see in the writings of, of Cardinal Ratzinger, the church is there, the community of the saints, to hold. Uh, all aspects of the faith in their proper order and their proper relationship, okay? Uh, and this is the problem of taking a verse out of context, that you take a verse and you make that verse to really ultimately to be God, rather than taking the full revelation of the Lord and all aspects of the faith and holding them together. It's an important part. We take the Bible together with the teachings of the church, okay? And you as a Catholic have to be confident because your whole life, Ed, your whole life, you've been listening to the teachings of the church and the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of the epistle every time you attend Mass. There's a certain confidence we need to have. So you say, I don't know the Bible. And certainly, we don't know the Bible enough. Certainly. There's room for growth. But I think you need to start with a little bit of confidence. Uh, another problem is that we do tend to answer questions about the faith from memorized theological conclusions. Some of you have heard me harp on this before. Many of you could answer, why did God make you? Why did God make you? To know, love, and serve him, right? That's an answer memorized from the Baltimore Catechism. What happens when you are baptized? Original sin is washed away. These are answers that we memorize from our catechism, but unfortunately, while they are true, they fall short of the depth and the breadth of the fullness of the revelation of Christ. They are a true theological conclusion, but that true theological conclusion is built upon 
a foundation, which is the foundation of the magisterium of the church. It's a foundation of, of patristic insight and the insight of the saints, and ultimately a foundation which is built upon sacred scripture. And until we regain that foundation in sacred scripture, we're not going to be able to communicate the faith and really know the faith ourselves in a good manner. And so we have to get back to the scriptures and the insights of the authors of scripture, the insights, the revelation of the Lord, ultimately, the word of God, and to be able to answer the truths of the faith and be able to understand them in a way that is biblical in its foundation. Okay. What does the Bible say about baptism, brothers and sisters? What does the Bible tell us happens in baptism? Well, it doesn't say that original sin is washed away. And I'm not saying that's not true. It is true. And yet, the Bible speaks in a different way. It uses, if you will, a different language. And I don't mean Greek or Hebrew. I mean a different culture, a way of expression, a way of insight. We've got to regain that language to make it our own. So that when we speak of baptism or when we think of baptism, we think in terms of sacred scripture. We think in terms of the authors of sacred scripture. We think in terms of images given to us from sacred scripture. When St. Paul wanted to teach on baptism, he turned to certain biblical images which made sense to the people of his time. So if we're going to understand what St. Paul teaches us about baptism, we have to become familiar with, infused with, almost converted into a way of thinking which is a biblical worldview, okay? I think that biblical worldview is probably the thing we want to hold on to. And how do we get hold of that biblical worldview to think about and to express the faith? What do we do as modern Americans? I think oftentimes we pick up our Bible, we do a couple things. Either uh, we begin at the beginning of Lent or at, uh, at I don't know, New Year's Day or uh, when we have a crisis in our life. We do one of two things. We either open our Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and begin reading, okay, which is problematic because the Bible is not like a newspaper. It's certainly not like a history book that page 1 goes to page 2 to page 3 to page 4 and so forth. It's not like that. It's laid out differently. We'll talk about that. Or worse than that, we just go like this. And we start reading. And when we start reading, we read things like, Arrogant men have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. By the wayside they have set snares for me. And somehow I'm supposed to get some serious spiritual inspiration from that. And it's a rather depressing moment there in the, as David writes his Psalms. Okay, So we can't play Russian roulette with the Bible because eventually we're going to shoot ourselves in the, and, and die. And I don't want you to die. We've got to, we've got to approach the Bible the right way. And to approach the Bible the right way, uh, number one, we, I'd say we need to have some confidence that you can do so. But we, we need to allow the Lord to speak to us. We need to allow the Word of God to truly communicate with us. So we begin in prayer, and we don't close our eyes and ears to what the Bible's saying. Um, a friend of mine in college called it Catholic comatose. We read something in the Bible that's challenging or difficult, and what do we do? We say, oh, that's Bible talk, and we keep reading. 
Why? Because I made a commitment that I'm just going to get through the book of Leviticus. Okay? Bad idea. We can't allow this kind of a blindness, these blinders, horse blinders, right? So we're not, okay, I don't know what that was all about, but I'm just going to keep going. Stop. I think we need biblical shock therapy, okay? Stop. Stop. Monica liked that one. Stop. Slow down. Challenge the Lord when he speaks to you if you don't understand. Lord, I don't understand. I want to understand, but I don't understand. Why is it that Noah's son uh, sees him naked and suddenly Noah's grandson gets cursed? I mean, that's just not right. It's not right. Stop. Slow down. Be willing to, to challenge. I'm sorry to say it. Yeah, challenge the Lord. He's going to speak to you. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Are you serious? Really? Have you ever thought about that? Think about it. The word of the Lord is a challenging word. And we have to be willing to be challenged by it. And when we're willing to be challenged by it, then we encounter the Lord. And I mean truly encounter him. Okay, we encounter a person who's speaking to us. And when the Lord speaks to us, he changes lives. He resurrects people from the dead. And I, I for one, need, need a little resurrection in my life. The, the Bible is the greatest literary work known to mankind. It's God's love letter to us. It's God's love letter, his gift, his literary gift to us. Uh, and it's beautiful. But if we've never read the Bible... And when reading a story in the Bible, we just say, oh, my God. We, I was talking with Daniel about this earlier in the week as we were prepping. Have you ever been reading the Bible and just had to stand up and just put your hands to your head because you hadn't seen it that way before? And suddenly a revelation takes place. And suddenly something beyond what is on the surface of the text happens. And when that happens then you begin to encounter the Lord and he begins to speak with you. I think people that love the Bible know this has happened to them where they just, it's so powerful. They can't remain seated anymore. We have to allow ourselves to be struck by God, to be struck by God. It's a gift to me and to you. And that gift is deep and it's rich and so I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, that number one, we need to pray. We need to slow down. We need to ask the Lord to speak to us. We have to be willing to encounter God. And to do that, we need exposure. We need exposure. You know, how many of you watched the... Uh, vice presidential debate last night okay yeah i would say probably most people watched that president that vice presidential debate last night how many of you spent as much time reading your bible last night and i condemn myself also i'm not perfect but here's the here's the thing if we don't expose ourselves to the word of God, if we don't avail ourselves to what God wants to do with us and speak to us, then, then we have only ourselves to blame. So as I said before, we have to make space 
in our life. We have to be willing to turn off the cell phone and turn off the computer, and yes, even turn off the Institute of Catholic Culture on occasion, not very often, but on occasion to turn it off so that we can begin to encounter the Word of God. I learned a great lesson from a bishop one time, uh, Bishop Nicholas Samra, my bishop, and he said, uh, he said, you know, when I make my bed at night, I put my Bible under my pillow. Or maybe he said on top of his pillow and he puts the sheet over the top of it. Anyways, so at least if I didn't read the Bible that day, when I lie down in bed, the last thing I do is open my Bible and read a few verses and then I close my eyes. And I think it's a great way to put things in our life to say, wait a minute, I'm going to make a choice about how I spend my day. I'm going to make a choice about what I read in the morning, whether it's the New York Times or the television in front of the coffee table or whatever it might be. I need to make a choice of how I'm going to spend my time. Am I willing to make time in my life to experience the Word of God? And I'll go one step further. If we want to be able to appreciate this gift, which is rich and deep, that exposure and time must be regular. If you want a child to eat vegetables, what do you have to do? You have to expose them early and regular, okay? And, and I know some of you have been to my home, and you know uh, Luciano or Mariana or Carlino. They love their vegetables, not because they're miracle children, but it's because they ate vegetables. The first thing I put in their mouth was a piece of broccoli, and the first thing I put in their ear was a hymn from the church, okay, or the Word of God. You've got to start early and do it regularly. If, you, if, if you're used to eating hamburgers, you're not going to appreciate a filet mignon. If you are used to drinking uh, root beer, you're not going to enjoy a glass of wine, okay? Not that that's a glass of wine, <laughs> but you've got the point. You've got to do it and do it regularly to begin to appreciate the depth of the gift, okay? And that's, and that's certainly true with our Bibles. St. Ambrose says that... In, as in paradise, right, as in the Garden of Eden, God walks in the Holy Scriptures seeking man. When a sinner reads the Scriptures, he hears God's voice saying, Adam, where are you? Ida, where are you? Henry, where are you? Bill, where are you? Anne-Marie, where are you? Ed, Marie, where are you? Father Hezekiah, where are you? When we read the scriptures, God comes and he speaks to us. And he says, where are you? Because to the extent that we are found in our sins, we find ourselves out of communion with God. And the communion with God happens in the communion of the saints in paradise, in the house of the Lord. And so we open our Bibles as an invitation, an invitation to that communion. Knowing where we stand and knowing the extent of the gift that God wants to give to us. I want to read you a, a small quotation from a, a biblical scholar, Paul Hinnebush, writing on a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, but it's applicable, I think, to all of Scripture. Uh, he says, in writing these things in the way that he did, it is Luke's intention, and we can say it is the authors of the Bible's intention, that we too, his readers, see what is taking place, so that our hearts too will be converted. He intends to get his readers 
fully involved in the mystery of Christ which he presents. We must not only see all this in faith, we must become involved in it all so that we too can live and experience it with the Lord. I can't tell you how valuable that quotation is. I've, I've had that quotation since I was in college, and I've always held on to it. Because to the extent that in your Bible, in the stories of the Bible, you stand on the outside, you will never truly understand the scriptures. We must stand on the edge of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. We must walk in paradise with Adam and see where he hid in the bushes. We have to be willing to get on the boat with Noah and smell the animals. We have to get inside the scriptures and allow God to speak with us on Noah's Ark. And I'm serious about that. You've got to get inside the story and to see it for all it's worth, to hear it for all it's worth, to smell it for all it's worth, and to allow God to speak to you for all it's worth. And so I'll, I'll finish with this statement. We're going we're gonna to turn, and, and Daniel's going to come in with a few. We're going to talk about some tools that you need, some preliminary tools. But to say in conclusion to this whole kind of opening section, which has taken much longer than it should have taken, that you can't climb the mountain of God out of breath. You can't climb the mountain of God out of breath. You'll want to let God speak to you, get some exercise, number one, and spend the time necessary to allow him to speak to you. Calm yourself in the, in the cave with Elijah. And don't look for him to, uh, for an earthquake or a fire. Look for him to speak into the recesses of your heart. And then the Bible will open up and you won't be able to keep yourself seated for the excitement that you experience when the floodwaters start to fill up. Okay. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some Bible tools, and I begin this with a very quick uh, little practical explanation. And, Daniel, I'm going to turn to you for a minute but uh, to show us some of those tools. But uh, first of all, I want you to grab your Bible, and I'm going to, uh, just, I'm going to div let you see the division of the Bible. I want you to hold it in your hand. Again, I told you this is, this is kindergarten Bible study right here, okay? The first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of your Bible are what's called the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch. It tells the story, the early stories, all the way up from the creation of Adam, all the way up to Israel standing on the edge of the Jordan River, uh, after their 40 years of wandering, about to enter back into the promised land. So you have Adam in there, you've got Noah in there, you've got Melchizedek in there, you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel, the 12 sons. You have their exile into Egypt. You have the calling of Moses. You have the exodus out of Egypt and ultimately the 40 years of wandering in Mount Sinai and then their entrance into, I should have said that first, Mount Sinai, the 40 years of wandering and then their entrance into the promised land Led by whom? Come on. Tell me who led Israel into the promised land. I just dropped my pencil. Come on. There you go. Joshua, right? Joshua. Am I right, Daniel? You're right, yes. Yeah, Joshua. Your next book of your Bible is Joshua. Okay. Then what we would consider the historical books of your Bible. So we've done the Pentateuch, which really are included in the historical books, by the way. Okay. Uh, they're going to tell a lot of the history of the, the early history, 
But you might consider the Pentateuch, those first five books, the story of the patriarchs. And then with the book of Joshua begins a new section in your Bible, the historical books. Okay, And so we're going to talk about Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. I hope you're flipping your Bible with me now. I'm right from Joshua. I'm going all the way now into Nehemiah and eventually into Tobit, okay? Ezra, Nehemiah, Tobit. Uh, and there at the beginning of Tobit, okay, or say at the end of Nehemiah, we end what are considered the historical books, although there's going to be two historical books usually tacked on to the end of your New Testament, which is First and Second Maccabees, okay? These are, this book, these are concepts which are somewhat helpful. They're not perfect, okay? When we start with Tobit, Judith, Esther, uh, Job, we begin the, the wisdom books. So I want you to have your Bible there. I want you to hold it. I want you to see Tobit. Okay, you got to see Tobit with me. The wisdom books. And you'll see Psalms. Okay, you'll see Proverbs. You'll see Ecclesiastes and Sirach. Okay, and those, if you want to hold them in your hand, are your wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. So we've had the Pentateuch, the historical books, and now our wisdom literature. And following that, following Sirach, starting with Isaiah, virtually the rest of your New Testament are the prophets. And the prophets all live during the time, for the most part, okay, the prophets all during the time of the Babylonian exile just before it, just during it, and just after it. Okay, Daniel, did you have something to add there? You said uh, the rest of the New Testament. You meant the rest of the Old Testament. Thank you, Daniel. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. <laughs> the rest of the Old Testament, all the way up to First and Second Maccabees, which really should be considered your historical books, okay? Sometimes your Bible will tack them back with the historical books, and sometimes they'll leave them toward the end of your Old Testament. The one thing that I think is most helpful for you to know, that your prophets, starting here with Isaiah and going all the way, if you want to count them as your prophets, all the way to Malachi, Malachi, your prophets are organized in your Bible from longest to shortest, from longest to shortest. So Isaiah is quite long. Jeremiah is quite long. The only difference there, it's for the most part, longest to shortest except when one of the prophets has another book associated with their name. Then they'll put it right there next to that prophet. For example, Jeremiah and the Lamentations of Jeremiah are next to each other, even though Lamentations is, a, is quite short. Then, starting with your New Testament, obviously you have your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have Acts of the Apostles, and I hope you're turning with me now. I want you to find Acts of the Apostles to find the end of Acts, and Acts tells about that time just after Pentecost, right? including Pentecost and just afterwards. And basically, Acts functions as the historical account for all of St. Paul's journeys, all of St. Paul's writings. And so all of those writings can be fit into Acts of the Apostles for the most part to make sense out of it. So never read St. Paul without Acts of the Apostles, okay? A text without a context is no text at all. So you want to know what's going on historically and why St. Paul's saying what he's saying? Read Acts of the Apostles 
as he visits that particular community. Okay? And then following Acts of the Apostles are all of St. Paul's epistles, right? Romans, you're going to see in your flipping Corinthians and so forth. Again, St. Paul's epistles are organized longest to shortest, just like the prophets, longest to shortest. So it's hard sometimes to find a particular passage in the Bible. Usually if you have a hard time finding it, it's because it's one of those very small, very short, right, prophets or short epistles of St. Paul. So you've got like Haggai, one of the short prophets. Who knows how to find Haggai? Okay, it take you like a half an hour. So this hopefully will help you. Following St. Paul, you have the Catholic epistles. Okay, so we want to, at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we're going to include Hebrews as one of St. Paul's writings. And then we begin with James. Okay, you see James there. And First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John and Jude are called the Catholic epistles. So again, New Testament, four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, the writings of St. Paul, and now the Catholic epistles. Why is it called Catholic epistles? Because, no Catholics, not because you're a Catholic and we really like the Catholic epistles. They're the Catholic epistles because they weren't written to one particular community. They're epistles which are considered to be universal in their application. Okay? And finally, the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of St. John. So that's your general layout and, and, and structure of your Bible. Uh, there's something more important that underlies all of that, and that is the journey from Genesis to the book of Revelation, which we'll get into a little bit later, but uh, ultimately you're going to have to listen to my Swords and Serpents. Uh, I know that Hamiltons are big fans of Swords and Serpents to understand how all of those tie together as one story. But that's not our job here tonight, is it? So we want to look at some tools because simple exposure is not enough. I know a lot of Protestants that read their Bible a lot more than Catholics, and they still remain outside of the church. They still remain protesting the church. Simple exposure is not enough. We need some tools. And the first thing I'm going to bring up for you, Daniel's going to bring up on your screen, is Cardinal Ratzinger's wonderful little text on how to read the Bible. This is linked, by the way, on the page for this talk. We're just going to read through it very quickly. And I'm going to stop on occasion to just point out something, and I might skip some things, okay? Uh, before you start reading, don't just start reading on the screen. Listen to me for a second. This was given off the cuff by Cardinal Ratzinger to a group of, of young people who met with him before he became Pope, which is why I keep saying Cardinal Ratzinger instead of Pope. Benedict, on how to read the Bible. First of all, it must be said that Holy Scripture cannot be read like just any other historical book. As we read uh, Homer and Ovid and Horace, we must read it as truly the Word of God, placing ourselves in conversation with God. We must pray first and talk to the Lord. Open the door for me. St. Augustine says this frequently in his homilies. I knocked at the door of the Word in order to find at last what the Lord wanted to say to me. And so we begin as we began our study in prayer. The second point, script, sacred scripture brings us into the communion of the family of God. So we cannot read sacred scripture on our own. This is why I've said to you before, the Bible is not made for the coffee table of heretics. Okay, it's a, it's a letter written to and within the family of God. Yeah, Daniel liked that one. Of course, it is always important to read the Bible in a very personal way. 
in a personal conversation with God. But at the same time, it is important to read it in the company of the persons who are on the journey with us. We must let ourselves be aided by the great masters. And here's the thing. You want to learn to play basketball? You'll watch Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or whatever, whoever it might be. You want to learn to read the Bible? Then you've got to watch the great masters, okay? St. Ephraim, Cardinal Ratzinger, for example. The great ones who can show us the way of how to really glean the most out of sacred scripture, okay? Uh, I'm going to come down to the third point. If it is important to read the sacred scripture with the help of teachers in the company of our friends, our company, our companions on the way, it is particularly important to read it in the great company of the pilgrim people of God, the church. Sacred scripture has two subjects. In the first place, there is the divine subject. It is God who is speaking, but God wanted to involve man in his word. While the Muslims are convinced that the Quran was inspired by God, Word for word, we believe that one of the characteristics of sacred scripture, as the theologians put it, is synergy, God's collaboration with man. He involves his people in his word, and thus the second subject, as I have said, God is the first subject, the second subject is human. The authors are individual, but there is continuity of a permanent subject, and that is the people of God that walks with the word of God and is in conversation with God. I want to stop for a second because he's He's getting into some deep stuff here. Number one, we have to appreciate the human author, but to realize also that when he speaks to us, he speaks to his family. God speaks within the family, and therefore we are on this journey and listening to the word of God as Melchizedek listened, as Abraham listened, as all of the great saints listened. We're in a greater communion than just ourselves. Okay, I'm going to come down to the next paragraph. This also explains many of the structures in sacred scripture, especially, especially the so-called rereading. An ancient text is represented in another book, let's say a hundred years later. And then there's a profound understanding of what had previously been inscrutable, even though it had been contained in the earlier text. This happens oftentimes between St. Paul's writings in the Old Testament, but it also happens in our understanding with the teachings of the church. The scriptures, the word of God, I should say, the word of God is alive. He's a person who spoke to Abraham, and he speaks to us. And that word is true and consistent, but we come to a further understanding, not a contradiction, but a further understanding of that mystery the further we go. Okay? And then I'm going to come down to the last paragraph, which I think is the most important. Look at that last paragraph. I think that we must learn these three elements. This is his, his, his summary, his conclusion but I think is most important. We must read, read in a personal conversation with the Lord, reading in the company of instructors who have the experience of the faith, reading in the great company of the church, in whose liturgy these events continually become present anew, such that we gradually enter more and more into the sacred scripture in which God really speaks to us today. My brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how important that last uh, sentence or two sentence, yeah, last sentence is. I'll read it again about halfway through. We read it in the great company of the church, in whose liturgy these events continuously become present anew, such that we gradually, through the liturgy, Enter more and more into the sacred scriptures, more and more into the word of God, in which God really speaks to us today. 
Okay, what is, what's he talking about? That today in baptism, the fullness of what happened in the flood is made true, revealed, and made present anew. Why? Because God is the one acting in the flood. God is the one acting in our baptism. And in the flood, sinful man died, and Noah and his family were preserved and brought to newness of life. Similarly, today, when we are baptized, the old man is cut off. Sinful man dies in the floodwaters of baptism. We are brought to a newness of life. The same with the crossing of the Red Sea. Israel's attachment to Egypt is cut off and buried in the waters of the Red Sea. Symbolized, represented by Pharaoh and the Egyptians who are buried there, covered over in the waters. And the people of God come to newness of life to behold the face of God on Mount Sinai. Similarly, in baptism, we die to our old self and are reborn in God as Noah did, as Moses did, as the people at the time of the crossing of the Jordan River did. And that reality of what happened, God's saving act in the flood, God's saving act in the cross of the Red Sea is made present anew in our liturgy. If you ever wanted to stand on the banks of the Jordan River and watch Israel cross over, if you ever wanted to see Israel cross through the Red Sea, dry shod, then attend a baptism in the church because God is there acting and taking history into himself. And now what happened then happens now, but in a more profound and more revealed manner. I hope that makes sense to you because you have a great gift through the liturgy that what is contained in the scriptures, the great story of salvation history, is now renewed, revived, relived, and everything contained here is made present today in its fullness in the Catholic Church. Okay? This text is posted for you on our website. Um, we're going to rush through very quickly, real quick, some tools, and then we're going to take our break. Okay? And what are those tools you've got to have in front of you? Number one, your Bible. Okay? You ain't going to read the Bible without the Bible, so get out your Bible, dust it off, and don't get out one of those big family Bibles, okay, that, you know, 18 generations, this weighs like 600 pounds. You've got to have a Bible that works for you. Now, you're going to tell me which Bible. Brothers and sisters, I don't care which Bible you have. Get out a Bible. For the love of God, get out a Bible. And let's stop hiding behind translations, which are all imperfect. Nevertheless, nevertheless, a good Bible study student can have a few different translations in front of them. Right, Daniel? What do you got over there? That's right. So I have, um, you know, my RSV CE Catholic edition, which nice. we probably have. Um, we also have my old rusty taped up Douay Reims. So uh, we also have, this is a great one. Uh, it's eight different translations in one. So... I have the King James Version, uh, the Revised Standard Version, the Jerusalem Bible, the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, then there's the New English Bible, um, and it puts them all side by side, so you can see all at once. And this is very helpful, especially if you don't know the original languages, because you can get different translations. Uh, there's an Italian saying that every translator is a traitor, and so... You can't really trust just one translation. As, as good as the NRSV 
New Revised Version Catholic Edition is, there's many parts that you get a bad translation. And if you look at the Douay Reigns or the King James or some other uh, translation, you'll find that it's different and it might be a better translation. And that's important to see when you're studying without the original languages. This is a start. You can see, all right, there's different translations here, and this can cause you to think to yourself, well, if there's different ways to translate it, what's the best? And then you can go look uh, beyond there to uh, some type of uh, interlinear Bible that has Greek and English. And you can go back and look at the Greek or the Hebrew, and you can ask someone, all right, what's this word here? How, how is it best translated? You can go to a grammar or something like that. Another thing to think about, too, uh, for the Old Testament, I have here the Septuagint version in Greek and English. And so this gives another translation of the Old Testament that you know, you'll, you'll find things that you won't find in the NRSV, CE, or any of the other ones. For example, uh, Father was talking about these, these wow moments when you're reading scripture. I was going through the Septuagint, and for Genesis 3, when the serpent tempts Eve to take the apple, and it says she ate it, and then if you read it in your normal English translation, it seems like Adam's off somewhere on the other side of the garden doing who knows what. But if you look at this uh, Septuagint translation of the English, it says that Eve ate it and gave some to Adam who was with her. Taste out taste. Who was with her. And so I looked at, you know, this caused me to look in the Hebrew and sure enough, it's Emma, which is who was with her in the Hebrew. So Adam's standing there the whole time. He's right there, right? And he fails to protect his bride from the serpent. It's not in the NRSVC. It's not in the NIV. It's not in the Douay Reigns. Why? Right? And so you miss this. When I tell my students this, they're, they're kind of angry because they're missing this key point to interpret scripture. And so that's why you have to make sure you're looking at multiple translations. I want to add something to that because there's a little comment about, uh, you know, Protestant Bible versus a Catholic Bible. The RSVP, RS, uh, RSV, sorry, the RSV is, is based upon, uh, founded upon the King James Version as a Protestant Bible. Listen, you've got to have all the tools in front of you you possibly can. Uh, and that means having a King James Version in front of you. Uh, yeah, even having an NRSV, not because I'm a liberal, but because every translator is a traitor. As, as Daniel just said, and by having multiple translations in front of you, you can see difficult passages, things which are hard to translate. A Hebrew idiom is almost impossible to translate properly to get it across. And so um, there's no good Bible translates Hebrew idioms perfectly. But by having various translations, you'll start to see where a verse has real trouble. And, and then you'll be able to read into it and be able to glean from it. A, a deeper point, and then that's going to be your really your your entry drug, if you will, into doing what Daniel's talking about is getting a little bit of Greek and Hebrew in the background. But it's going to be it's going to give you uh, it's going to give you more tools, and we need more tools. All right, your catechism. I hope you all have a catechism in front of you. But your catechism is a huge resource for you because you have in your catechism all the biblical references, and when you're reading a text, you can go see if the catechism has something to say. Uh, maps, you got to have with you, there you go, here's, here's Abraham's journey. You can't, okay, stop. you got to slow down. 
when a city is mentioned, a place is mentioned, you've got to go to your Bible. Nine times out of ten, it's not going to be all that helpful, but it's that one time that you're looking for, that piece of gold that's buried, you're going to be able to see it. As I mentioned in our, in our Swords and Serpents series, you'll notice that Abraham starts at Ur of the Chaldees. He travels exactly west, okay, west all the way, well, oh no, across, Daniel, across the desert. He does go up and around, but he eventually ends up in Jerusalem, west of Ur of the Chaldees. is very important, as I talk about in the Salvation History series. So you've got to have a map in front of you. You've got to know where Jesus is going, where Moses is traveling, where Abraham is. You've got to get the context if you're going to be able to get inside the text and see it for all it's worth. Okay, enough about that. Concordance. Daniel's going to pull up a concordance. Here's another tool of the Bible. So we're going through tools right now, right? Your Bible, uh, a catechism, maps, and now a concordance. Daniel, why don't you pull up one quick example of the concordance? We're in a hurry. Okay, so this is the coverage of the strongest exhaustive concordance of the Bible. Um, it's very helpful. Let me show you this other, uh, an example of it here is... This is what you can find. So say you want to find all the instances of the word Passover in the Old and New Testament. Well, this tells you every single word, uh, every time Passover comes up. So it begins first here, it is the Lord's Passover, Exodus 12, 11. This is what it looks like inside Strong's Concordance. You have a list of all the words in scripture. And if so, as I was saying, if you want to find Passover, where is it in the Old Testament? Well, we have it here uh, in Exodus 12, 11. You know, if you want to find out where all the instances of Passover uh, is found in Deuteronomy, you can look right here. If you want to this look is, in the New Testament, where is Passover located in the Gospel of John? You have that right here. Uh, so this is a very useful tool uh, to find out where certain words are used all throughout uh, sacred scripture. This is so important, you guys, because, because when, you, when you read about the Passover and, and during the Passion of the Lord, you've got to go back and read Exodus chapter 12. If you don't renew your understanding of Passover, then you're going to that Catholic comatose. Oh, yeah, Jesus, the Passover, the Last Supper, I've heard all that before. Stop. You've got to go back and find out what Passover was all about. Then start to read what Jesus did during Passover, and you'll understand him as the Lamb of God. You'll understand him as the one who passes over from death to life. Okay? So this is why we call Easter uh, traditionally Pascha. Pascha is Passover. Jesus is our Passover. Okay? Jesus is the one who protects us from death and gives us newness of life. But you're not going to do that and remember that unless you go back to the Old Testament. And the concordance can help you do that. He showed you that Strong's Concordance, which is a little Protestant concordance, but it's helpful. I'll tell you why. Because really your best English translation today is your RSV, Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition. Catholic Edition. Okay, It's going to have all the books of the Bible in it. Okay, uh, And so on that point, I'll say, yes, a Protestant Bible is deficient. Absolutely. I'm talking about translation issues Daniel's talking about translation issues where you've got to have multiple versions in front of you. Whether your, your RSV, your Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, is the best Bible really today. But again, it's imperfect. The Concordance by Strong's is based upon the King James Version, and your RSV is also based upon the King James Version. And so the words tend to be the same. Ignatius does sell the Concordance, uh, but it's quite expensive if you want to buy it. 
But that Strong's Concordance, you can get like last year's model, and don't, it doesn't change that much. So just get last year's model. It's on sale for like a buck ninety nine. They just get rid of it. And they change it all the time. So pick up your little dollar ninety nine, very small concordance. Okay, and then your commentaries. You need to have some good commentaries if you're going to read the Bible and you're going to learn from the masters. There's another tool. What are your commentaries? First of all, you've got verse by verse commentaries that are going to comment on each verse. The Ignatius Study Bible or Ignatius Commentary, very nice. Yeah, Daniel, you got to hold it up there. Yeah, you see here, here it is right here. This is Matthews. They also have uh, the whole New Testament in one volume, and they're working on the Old Testament as well. Very good. The Navarre has a good uh, verse by verse. Yes. Then there's general commentaries about uh, uh, that, that you can have by, I'll give you an example, is Scott Hans, A Father Who Keeps His Promises. This is a great little book. Here it is right here, Father Who Keeps His Promises by Scott Hahn. It's uh, God's covenant love in Scripture. And what he does, he takes you through, uh, really tells the unifying story of sacred Scripture, which is covenant. And he takes you through uh, the covenant at creation with Adam to Noah to Abraham. I missed one. Uh, Moses. Yeah. Uh, David. And then to the New Testament. All the way through. It's, a, it's an excellent little book. Very readable. Wonderful. Okay, very quickly, I've got uh, uh, a couple of little tools, and that is your highlighters, your highlighters, your rulers, your maps, etc. Daniel, why don't you go ahead and show what you've got there? So we've got uh, different colored highlighters, which are very important to mark up your Bible. Uh, you want to write down, highlight different words, the same words, so you can see them all together. Where, where do these words pop out at the same time? Uh, that's very helpful, and a ruler to draw connections between them. There's also this great pens. Pens are very good. Sometimes highlighters bleed through um, to the other side of the page, which is a real pain in the neck, and I'm not a big fan of that. But pens are great. You can use this pen here. You, if you can see this, it has uh, different clickable uh, colored sides here. You can get colored pencils. You know, whatever it is to mark up your Bible. Um, Father, do you want me to show them what an example of my Bible, what it looks like? Sure, go ahead, go ahead. So here we go. This is an example of my Bible. Um, you can see here the blue highlights all the instances of Jesus Christ or Jesus, Father, Spirit. So you see that Peter is starting out uh, his first letter here with a Trinitarian emphasis. But then I've also, uh, in red, you can see hope, faith, faith, love. Right, and it keeps going over to the other side. Hope, faith, love. So there's uh, a twofold emphasis for Peter when he starts his letter. It's Trinitarian, and it's the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Uh, another thing that's important to Peter here, you see in green, inheritance, which is kept for you in heaven, which is to uh, that you have been born anew in Christ. And so these are key things you want to highlight. You're, don't be afraid to mark up your Bible. Right? That's what it's there for. Write notes in your Bible. Right? I write at the top here, Father, um, I was listening to a uh, talk you did with, or, or not that you did, that Stephen Smith did. And uh, he was saying, talking about writing in his Bible, he mentioned that Pope Francis, uh, someone said, get a new Bible, and his is all old and falling out. And, and he loves that, right? He, he loves that example because your Bible should be used. It should be falling out, right? Pages should be falling out. Uh, but Father was saying at the top, 
he writes down, he writes the themes of each letter and stuff. So when he comes back to it, it reminds him as he reads it. Don't be afraid to write in your Bible. Mark it up. Whatever is going to help you understand the word of God better, do it. All right. And, and, and ultimately, I want to come back to the point, our launching point for this little section on tools was the liturgy. You've got to use the liturgy as a tool, okay? Avail yourself to the mysteries which are before you because it's through the liturgy that the things in the Bible are made present to you in your life, okay? Uh, you're walking by a baptism in the, in, the, in the baptistry of your church, and there's a family that's baptizing a child. There's no such thing as a private baptism. I'll say that again. There's no such thing as a private baptism. They, that child is being born again into your family. Stop. Attend it. Stand there on the edge of the Red Sea. Stand there with Noah and see man be restored to the image and likeness of God and listen to what the church says about baptism. And you'll start to understand what happened when Noah got in the ark and crossed the waters of the flood. Okay? Daniel, we're going to start to get into our uh, um, principles in the catechism that we need to cover. Go ahead. Before we do that, um, I'd like to point out another good and uh, very useful tool, which is the Catholic Bible Dictionary. This is also very good for looking up names of... Uh, names, places, uh, events, and so forth of scripture. It has uh, commentaries, a brief little introduction to books. It uh, tells, you know, who it's written to, you know, what's the theme and so forth like that. Um, so uh, not just this Bible commentary, but other uh, Bible dictionary. There are many Bible dictionaries out there that also are a very helpful tool. Wonderful, wonderful. And I'll, I'll just conclude our, our earlier section as an intro to the next section I'll tell you, the last tool I'll give you is a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. You know, I, there's nothing that will change your perspective on Scripture like a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We're going to be doing it next year in, uh, what, late June, Monica, am I right? Late June, I think. That's right. Yep, that's correct. So if you want to call the office and get on the list, uh, we're going to be standing knee-deep in the Sea of Galilee with our Bibles in our hands while everybody else is taking pictures from the road. Yep. That's a pilgrimage, uh, Father Hezekiah style. The first time I went to the Holy Land, we got to the Jordan River, and the, and the guide says, okay, everyone, you can take your pictures of the Jordan River. And I said, are you insane? I, I jumped in the water, and I started getting all the ladies down there, and the gentlemen, we all got in the water, went swimming with the uh, muskrats. It was great. Yeah, it was, very, it was good. It was good. All right, the key is we have to start reading Scripture the way that Jesus and the apostles and the early Christians would have read it. How did they read it? What did they see? Most important, to place ourselves in the context of the time. And that's not easy. That's why the tools are, are helpful to us. They're vehicles by which we can get into the story. Okay? For the apostles, it, it was their culture we have to become connatural with that culture, okay? We have to get inside it to taste the food, to see what it looked like, to experience it, and then suddenly we'll understand what's going on. I want you to open your Bibles to uh, Philippians, okay? The epistle to the Philippians. 
And we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every other name. And you know this text, okay? I want you to I want to ask you a question. Who is St. Paul talking about? Who is St. Paul talking about? And I want you to hold on to that for a moment while we continue our study together this evening. Go ahead, you can close your Bible. Just a little question for you. And uh, just to meditate upon, and we're going to come back to this in the context of what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, few minutes. We're going to talk very quickly about the human author and the divine author, okay? It's very important as we approach the scriptures that we understand the scriptures as they were originally written. Daniel's going to share with us the catechism, paragraph 111 that talks to this very point, and I think we need to internalize it. I'll tell you right now, that if there's anything I say tonight, it's this point, okay? So listen to it, and Daniel, go ahead. Well, you're sharing it with us. I'll read it. We're start with, let's start with paragraph 109. In the sacred scripture, God speaks to man in a human way. To interpret scripture correctly, the reader must be attentive to what the human author's truly wanted to affirm into what God wanted to reveal to us by his words. In order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time and culture, the literary genres in use at the time, and the modes of feeling, speaking and narrating, then current. For the fact is that truth is differently presented and expressed in the various types of historical writings, in prophetical and poetic texts, and in other forms of literary expression. But since the sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correct interpretation without which scripture would remain a dead letter. Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in light of the same spirit by whom it was written. Okay, I'm going to stop for a moment. It's, it's super important that you internalize this point. Okay, especially 109 and 110. 110, really. In order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account all of these things. You have to take into all of it. Here's the problem. We go to Mass, and suddenly we hear an Old Testament reading from Ezekiel. Who is Ezekiel, Tom? Tell me who Ezekiel is. Tell me when he lived, what his life was like as a child. Tell me who he was preaching to. Tell me who's banging down the doors of Jerusalem at the time. Tell them what crisis is going on. And if you can't tell me that, then I'm sorry you have no business reading Ezekiel. Because you know what you're going to do? You're going to piously apply it morally to your life out of context. And Tom, take off your microphone mute button for a moment and tell me that a text out of context, what happens? There's no, no text, text at all. all. Thank you. I'm sorry to get a little excited, but, it, but I'm telling you, here's the crucial moment where the Catholics divide from the Protestants, okay? We have to understand the historical context of what's going on, what the author's intending to write, when he's writing it. Here's your questions you want to put in front of you.
Okay? Who, what, why, where, and when. If you can answer those five questions for me, then I'm going to listen to you on your interpretation of the Bible. Who, what, why, where, and when. And that's going to take some time. Where was he writing? Who was he writing to? Why was he writing? Who is this guy anyways, right? Who is Ezekiel? Who is Daniel? Uh, Daniel, you've got uh, Antonio Fuentes, right? I do, yes. Page, I think it's 13B. <clears throat> I want you to read this. This is a wonderful text. What's it called? It's called A Guide to the Bible. The Guide to the Bible by Antonio Fuentes. It's a nice little introduction to each, each, each book of the Bible. Okay, he's got a little introduction to each, each book. Excellent. Much better than Wikipedia. Go ahead, Daniel. He says, the inspired writers reported events as they saw them in line with the cultural and mental outlook of the period in which they lived. For example, they will say that the sun goes down or that it stopped. They would be telling lies if they said otherwise. The only aspect of this which is of interest to the reader of the Bible is knowing what people mean when they express themselves in this way. If we realize what they mean, then we will understand the core of revealed truth much better. It is God himself, in the case of the sun, stopping for Joshua, or any other miraculous event, who intervenes in history by using natural occurrences and changing them to suit his plans, so that man thereby discovers that it is God who is addressing him, who is telling him that he is not alone, but that God is his protector. Antonio Fuentes is wonderful, and this is the point, is you're getting into now to understand it according to the attention of the human author, according to his experience, according to his background. And if you can do that, brothers and sisters, you're going to be way beyond. You're going to be able to get into the text. I'll give you an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Open there. Okay, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, St. Paul's talking about baptism, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Okay, so what does he do? How does he speak to this Jewish audience? Oh, not chapter 12. I want 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm sorry. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10. Okay, I'm going to read it for you. I hope you're there already. I'm going to look at verse 1. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. What sea is he talking about? He's talking about the Red Sea, okay? And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same supernatural food. All drank from the same supernatural drink. And they drank from Christ. I want you to stop, Catholics, because he's talking about baptism in the Eucharist. In the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. you got to get inside that story and start to see the flood, the crossing of the sea, the feeding with manna, in terms of the fulfillness of, fullness of that revelation. And the fullness of that revelation is found in Jesus Christ. And St. Paul understands that's the same God acting who's burying and bringing to life in the Old Testament, who's burying and bringing to life in, in the New Testament, if you will. All right? The same mysteries revealed in your life, in my life, in Noah's life, in Abraham's life, in Jesus' life. It's the same God acting. And you are in a very special place. You're in a better place than Noah was to understand what was going on in the flood. You're in a better place than Moses was to understand what's going on in the Red Sea. But if you want to understand what's going on, you understand it in terms of the fullness of that revelation according to the culture in which it was written, 
according to the intention of the author who wrote it. Okay? Who, what, why, where, and when. Daniel, did you have anything to add to that that you wanted, any thoughts that I'm, I'm missing? Uh, well, there is, uh, we could bring about up the uh, catechism, 1214, if you want to bring up this. Go ahead, go ahead. A, a good example of exactly what you were saying. Um, and this is why we read this catechism at the same time as scripture and scripture at the same time as the catechism. They're meant to be read together. And so you see here in 1214, this sacrament is called baptism after the central rite by which it is carried out. To baptize, Greek baptizane, means to plunge or immerse. The plunge into the water symbolizes the catechumen's burial into Christ's death, from which he rises by resurrection with him as a new creature. And so as Father was talking about, what St. Paul is bringing out here, that you know, we are in the flood with Moses. And, you know, we're under the cloud in the sea uh, with Moses. We're eating from the same supernatural food and drank from the supernatural drink that Moses in the desert does. And that carries over to Christ's work in the New Testament. But it doesn't stop there. It carries over into the liturgy too. So that when you are baptized, not only are you entering into the flood and coming up on the other side like Noah, but you're baptized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And you thereby become a new creature in Christ. You know, this Daniel, I'm so glad you brought this up because we had to fly over it during the tools section. If you guys open to Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six, I think it's worth us just stopping for a second and taking a look at this because this is exactly what, uh, what, the church is talking about in the catechism, okay? Romans chapter 6, I'm going to look at verse 1, okay? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, as the catechism points out, who have been plunged into Christ Jesus, were plunged, baptizing, into his death? We were buried with him in baptism, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. You want to know what happens in baptism, brothers and sisters? Don't tell me original sin is washed away. Yes, it is, but I want you to speak in biblical terms. You die with Christ, you're buried with Christ, you rise with Christ, and Jesus risen from the dead, death no longer has dominion over him, he has no longer dominion over you. You walk in newness of life, Put away the old life, Tom. Put away the old life and walk in a newness of life, which is a life of resurrection. This is what happens in baptism. Now, now Daniel, pull that catechism back up. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go after Tom alone. Bill, Father Hezekiah, walk in newness of life. All right, pull that catechism back up because I want you to see uh, that off of that Quote, in paragraph 1214, the sacrament is called baptism out of the center right, which is carried out to baptize Greek baptizane means to plunge or immerse. The plunge into the water symbolizes the catechumen's burial into Christ's uh, death from which he rises up by resurrection with him as a new creature, right? Think Adam and Eve. Now I want you to come down to the footnote six. I know it's small, but you can see it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Galatians 6, 15, Romans 6, 34, Colossians 2, 12. Stop. There's your Bible study. You want to learn about baptism? That's your Bible study right there. This is why the catechism is a huge tool for getting into the scriptures. 
Okay? They put the Bible study right there for you to understand what happens. One more thing, too. Um, your catechism also, at the back of it, has an index of citations, which has scriptural citations. So if you're reading scripture and you come across a passage and you want to know what does the catechism say about this, you might not know paragraph 1214, but you can look in the back and look up Romans 6 and see where the catechism talks about Romans 6. Uh, so make, use the index. Use all the tools at your advantage. Good. And, uh, and that uh, just to bring back to, the to, to this whole point, who, what, why, where, when. You answer those questions, you've got the human author. Who, what, why, where, when. And that requires you to slow down and to challenge the word of God. Okay? That means getting inside the text. Inside the text. I'll read, I want to read you a little quotation. By the way, Daniel, I found my quote from, from my uh, undergraduate thesis. And I don't read it because I wrote it. I read it because it's, a, it's tacking together a few great quotes. When I started doing investigating the transfiguration of the Lord on Mount Tabor, I'll read you what I wrote. With the confession that Jesus is the Christ of God, Peter has recognized his master. With the confession that Jesus is the Christ of God, Peter has recognized his master as the anointed king of Israel. It is eight days after this confession that we find ourselves climbing the magnificent mountain of Tabor, up the steep, twisting path through a thicket of oaks and pistachio trees to the summit where a view opens to the east to the Sea of Galilee and the River Jordan. Okay. I read that to you, not because I wrote it, I did write it and quoted some guys, but because I had never been to the Holy Land. I had never at that point been to Mount Tabor. But I'll tell you, I had to get inside it. I had to see what it was like to climb Mount Tabor, okay? And some of you that have gone with me, unfortunately, I took a car up. One of these days, I'm going to go and we're going to climb up that mountain in sandals together over the rocks and everything. But this is what you're going to see. You're going to smell the oak trees, and you're going to get up on top, and you're going to see out over toward the Sea of Galilee. Do you guys remember the great valley that spreads out? One of the most amazing places in the entire earth where all the great battles of salvation history took place is right at the base of Mount Tabor. And there, Jesus revealed himself as the Christ of God, as the Son, as the King. And there he turned his face to Jerusalem to climb willingly upon the cross to be enthroned as king of the world. Okay, it begins there at Mount Tabor, but you've got to see it. You've got to get inside it. Okay, that's, that's enough about that because we not only have to take into account the human author, the who, what, why, where, when, but we've got to take into account another author, don't we, Daniel? Talk to us about this other aspect Yes, yeah, so the other aspect is the divine author, which all of scripture is a unity because it has one primary author. It has several human authors, but those are all tied together by the one divine author, which is the Holy Spirit. And so sacred scripture isn't just a collection of books. It's one book that is, has a unity from the beginning with Genesis all the way to Revelation because God is, it's his word the whole time. And he's inspiring the sacred authors, not in a way where it's a competitive uh, causality. He's not twisting their will. He's inspiring them in such a way that 
God is 100% author. And at the same time, the human author is, is 100% author, right? So God inspires them to write in uh, human ways. Now, the catechism here, talking about scripture as you know, coming from the fact that there is one primary author, which is God, it gives us three criteria to interpret sacred scripture. Let's look at paragraph 111 and 112 together. So 111, but since sacred scripture is inspired, inspired there comes from the, uh, the word that St. Paul uses, which is theonoustos, which means God breathed. But since sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correct interpretation without which scripture would remain a dead letter. Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in light of the same spirit by whom it was written. The Second Vatican Council indicates three criteria for interpreting scripture in accordance with the spirit who inspired it. And so here it's going to give us our three criteria, starting with 112. Be especially attentive to the content and unity of the whole scripture. Different as the books which comprise it may be, scripture is a unity by reason of the unity of God's plan, of which Christ Jesus is the center and heart open since his Passover. Uh, this calls to mind the famous saying of St. Augustine, that the new is hidden in the old, and the old is revealed or made known in the new. So all of Scripture points to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ, and the New Testament points back to the promise of the Old Testament. Daniel, as you're talking, I was thinking about um, the road to Emmaus. And yes. I think it might be helpful for us if we turn there real quick. I think we've got, we've got a minute to do it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 24. Is this, this point that Daniel's talking about, well, well, the human author is important, and the different aspects of the historical context are important. What he's saying is that from Genesis to the book of Revelation, all of the books of the Bible are tied together as one revelation, one mystery of God's interaction with man. And therefore, from Moses to uh, Jeremiah, to uh, Luke, to St. Paul, there is one author underlying the whole story. And when we break through the different authors through their historical context, then behind all of that, we begin to see the fullness of the revelation, the unity of God's plan, that it's not chopped up into, oh, there's this guy over here and this guy over there, there's one book here and one book there. It's one message and one book and one revelation, and that revelation is a revelation of God's love. And I think uh, the best example here is in Luke to say, you want to study the Bible? I can't imagine a better person to study with than Jesus, right? Can I have an amen, brothers and sisters? We want to study the amen. Word of God with the Word of God. Yeah? Monica? Monica's with us, okay? We want to study the Word of God with the Word of God. And so I want to take, look, look at chapter 24. You know the story of the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus rises from the dead. Here we got a couple of guys walking, walking back to their town, and yeah, they're frustrated. They're mad, okay? Uh, the one they thought was going to save them suddenly dies on the cross. He's buried, and they're frustrated. Look at chapter 24, verse 25. Jesus appears to them on the road to Emmaus. He says, and he said o men, uh, to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And now you want to know how to do a Bible study? Beginning with Moses, that means Genesis, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. In other words, look, the, the New Testament is the last chapter of a book. Yes, it's the most important chapter. But when you read the last chapter of the book, without reading the rest of the book, you're going to read it and not understand what's going on. Okay? Because it's not simply a collection of books. Underlying the whole story is the mystery of God's salvific plan for mankind. From the Garden of Eden, through the flood, through the sacrifice of Isaac, through the exodus, through the crossing of the Sinai Desert, through the entrance into Jerusalem and the Holy Land, through the Babylonian exile, to the return from Babylon, from the post-Babylonian exile, to the advent of the Messiah, to today. It is the God, same God who is acting, and therefore it is one story of God's love for us, his knocking on our, on our hearts, Henry, He's knocking on our hearts, Monica. He's knocking on our hearts, Ida. He's knocking on our hearts, Noah. He's knocking on our hearts, Ezekiel. And he doesn't change. He's the one God who loves us and wants to share his life with us. And when we begin to read the Bible like that, then we'll realize that we're in one family. And God speaking to Noah, Noah also speaks to us and calls us home to him. All right, the content and unity of the whole of Scripture. Daniel, go ahead, jump in there. Yeah, so once again, this goes back to what Father was saying earlier. Context is key. Context is key. You read the verses in light of the verses that came before and after. You read the chapter in light of the chapters that came before and after. You read the books in light of the books that came before and after. You read the Testaments, the Old Testament, in light of the New, and the New in light of the Old. And then you get the full view of God's divine plan in salvation history. All right. I can't keep my, my mouth shut because this is so exciting. This is so good, what we're talking about here. It's so right. I want you to come back to one text that we looked at earlier, and that's Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read this text to you again. And my new Bible study students... You're all going to understand what's going on. A text without a context is no text at all. The New Testament without the Old Testament is dangerous. You can quote me on that. You know why? Because you've got a bunch of people out there that are heretics that are running around quoting New Testament verses and don't know the first thing about the Old Testament. What do they do? They get themselves into patropassionist heresy. They get themselves into places they shouldn't be. And that is the ancient heresy of Marcionism as well. Just thank you Old Testament and having a New Testament. Exactly. All right. Philippians chapter two, verse five, having this in mind, in mind among yourselves. I'm going to ask you this question. I want an answer. Who's St. Paul talking about having this in mind among yourselves, which was, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Who counted equality with God a thing to be grasped? But he emptied himself. And who refused to empty himself? Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, the one who, 
was in the image and likeness of God. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient. My brothers and sisters, who is the one that became disobedient and grasped what was not his to grasp? Yeah, St. Paul's talking about Adam. And he says, you want to know the one who's going to give us life is the one who reverses what Adam does, who empties himself rather than trying to take what is not his, who refuses to grasp what Adam tried to grasp instead of receiving it as a gift. St. Paul's talking about Adam, and he's talking about the new Adam. How many times have we heard that verse? Out of context. Always a text in context, and suddenly you'll be able to understand what Jesus is doing and why he's doing it. Okay? I'll leave you with this to finish this point, and I'll leave, Daniel can throw something if he wants, but listen. Never dislocate yourself from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Jesus came to save us from a problem, and the problem is the fall. So uh, we've got a little time left. Let's get through the last two criteria here because these are very important. So the second criteria is found in 112. Be especially attentive to the content and the, I'm sorry, 113, read the scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. According to a saying of the fathers, its origin that it's quoting, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. For the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of the scripture according to the spiritual meaning which the spirit grants to the church. So, of course, yes, we read scripture within the living tradition of the church because scripture is nothing other than tradition written down for preservation. And so, yes, we want to read it within uh, the church's living tradition. Pope Benedict XVI in Verbum Domini, uh, paragraph 29, which is his apostolic exhortation, says that the primary setting for scriptural interpretation is the life of the church. So read it with the church. You know, there's the saying, ex corde ecclesiae. We are to read scripture from the heart of the church, ex corde ecclesiae. Read it with the fathers. Read it with the spiritual masters. And then you're reading it with and from the heart of the church, from its living tradition, which is primarily found in the liturgy. The liturgy is the, the prime place where scripture is to be read and it gets its meaning from the liturgical action father can uh jump in on this and and ex talk about this more well you know i was as you were talking i was thinking about uh the ethiopian eunuch and philip uh do you remember what what he was reading he was reading isaiah exactly read isaiah in the old testament and philip says do you understand what you're reading and what does the ethiopian eunuch say how can oh. i if i have no one to teach me bingo that's it. How can I, unless I have no one to teach me? It requires humility, certainly. But there's some great masters. And someone put in the comment section, uh, Bob put on there, that mentioned the commentaries from the fathers, or how the early fathers are really good. Yes. Not only really good, essentially important. Okay, I mean, modern commentaries are good, but let me tell you, you just drink the church fathers in, and you're going to be drinking in the sacred scriptures. So there's your commentary. And the best of the commentators of the early fathers, I think, is St. Ephraim. And it's not just me. He's a doctor of the church. He's a doctor of the church because of his commentaries on sacred scripture. St. Ephraim uh, is fantastic. So certainly 
We need those guides who are alive to us. Saint Edmund didn't die, you know, centuries and centuries ago. He's alive, risen from the dead with Jesus. He was baptized. Go ahead. And you know what Philip did in that in that uh, in Acts? There, he follows the first criteria. <clears throat> Starts with Isaiah and shows how the Messiah must suffer and be risen again. And so he points Isaiah to Christ, which is exactly what the first criteria says. That's so right. the third criteria is, uh, it's real quick, we'll just say it, be attentive to the analogy of faith. So what do we mean by the analogy of faith? We mean the rule of faith. So, for example, if you're not reading scripture from the heart of the church and, and taking the church's dogmas into account, when you're reading it, you're going to get lost. Like Arius did in John 14, 20, uh, 28, when Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. If you aren't reading according to the church's dogmas, you're going to think, oh, well, the father, if the Father is greater than the Son, then the Son must be some sort of creature. And you're going to go off into heresy. But if you read it with the analogy of faith, with the teachings of the church, and apply those back to Scripture, then you see, well, okay, he says the Father is greater, greater than I, but the Son is consubstantial with the Father. So there must be a different meaning that he's getting at here. And you realize that Christ is speaking according to his human nature, which is a created nature. And so, of course, it's less than the Father. But in his divinity, he's consubstantial with the Father. You know, Daniel, on this point and really the point before, these two aspects that the catechism is pointing out, there was, um, I think it was Tim Gray, who was one of my professors in, in college, he, he compared it to a stained glass window. When you see the stained glass window from the outside, what does it look like? It's brown, ugly, nothing, right? You get it on the inside and the light shines through it and suddenly it's magnificent. And there's the difference, is reading scriptures from within the church. And this is where confidence of the people of God is so important. Do you believe in Jesus? Huh? Yes. Do you believe in the Holy Trinity? Amen. The teachings of the church and that Christ founded the church. Are you are you going to confession on a regular basis and receiving holy communion? My brothers and sisters, St. Paul had a name for you, and it was the saints, the holy ones. And holy ones are those who have God's life flowing through them. There's a certain amount of confidence you have when you're standing on the inside of the building and the sun's shining through the stained glass window of sacred scripture that you can read and you can draw out beautiful insights from the scriptures, that then once you have all of these things in place, who, what, why, where, when, the unity of scripture, these principles in place, then you can say, Anne-Marie, then you can say, Marie, or Nora, or Ida. Now you can say, how does this apply to me? But if you don't have those things in place, then you're going to misapply the text to your life. You cannot apply the scriptures to your life until you put these critical principles in place. I have, to, I have to add to this that, you know, being a convert, when I was a Protestant, yeah, I read scripture, but I didn't really understand scripture. When I entered the Catholic Church, I really understood it. I was reading my family history. The Catholic, what we read in scripture, the first uh, apostles, they're Catholic. The first disciples are Catholic. It's all Catholic. This is our history. It's, it's like going back and tracing your family tree or reading uh, your genealogy. And so outside of the church, you don't get it. You're like looking at some other family. 
But when you enter in and you see, oh, wow, the, when they're breaking the bread, when they're meeting together uh, on the Lord's Day, right? This is the Eucharist. This is what we have here. It's something that I couldn't understand outside of the church unless I was in there living and reading scripture from the heart of the church. And then I saw, ah, this is what it is. This is the Catholic Church. John Henry Newman has a saying, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Well, we have history here. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Gospels. It's the New Testament. It's Catholic history. So you know more scripture than you think you do because you're living it. You're breathing it. It's every aspect of your life. The don't let anyone, any Protestant, try to tell you that, you know, the Scripture is, is Protestant, right? Scripture is Catholic. It's the Catholic Church who gave the world the Bible. The Bible belongs to you. Don't let the Protestants take it away from you, right? So read it. Read it. See your history. See where you came from. See the roots. And then go into the fathers and see how they read Scripture. See how our older brothers in the faith read it. Look at Aquinas. People forget about his scriptural commentaries. His commentaries are what he taught. It was his primary uh, duty as a theologian was to comment on Scripture. The Sumer is great and everything, but the biblical commentaries are where it's at. Daniel, that's, that is excellent. I'll leave you with this, this general image and conclude with a prayer. When God made Adam and Eve in paradise, this was our home. But to the extent that man was unfaithful, he was exiled from that home, communion with God. To the extent that he was faithful, he was drawn back to that home. And all of salvation history is that story, in and out of God's home. And that story continues in our life. If you want to know what's going on in your life, if you want God to speak to your heart through the sacred scriptures, learn exactly as Daniel just said, what he has done for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And then you'll know how to pray in your cave with Elijah and hear God whispering to you in that still small voice and calling you to your mission in your life, revealing to you his will for you in your life and in the church. Now let's conclude with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. From the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.